0: As we uh, take uh, Numbers chapter 5 all together, it's not all weird, It's just some of it's weird. And so Numbers chapter 5, I'll re- be reading just the first uh, couple verses, but keep your Bibles open because we're going to be all through the whole chapter, not reading every verse per se, but certainly through the chapter. Uh, so the title of today's message is Rules for Holiness from Numbers chapter 5, Rules for Holiness. And so Numbers chapter 5, the first two verses, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper and everyone that has an issue, and whosoever is defiled by the dead. And so we're going to see rules for holiness tonight. And you see what we're talking about, some sick people here. There's a leper and somebody with an issue. That means, like, uh, I don't want to get too gross, but, you know, something's coming out of their skin or whatever. And then, of course, somebody who has touched a dead body. And so uh, they're concerned about sickness in particular here. And I heard a story. There was a lady uh, called the local Baptist pastor and said, hey, listen, I need you to come and pray for me because I'm sick. And he said, but don't you go to the Presbyterian church? Isn't your Presbyterian minister available? Well, she said, oh, yes, he's available. uh, But in case I'm contagious, I don't want him to get sick. So. Anyway, rules for holiness, the first thing we see here is isolation. Isolation. The disease were to be separated from the rest of the camp. We see that there in verse 2. They were still part of God's people. Now, just because they were sick didn't mean they weren't part of God's people. They were still part of God's people. They just had to live outside the camp. And that is because God understands infectious diseases and the transmission thereof. Now, the people didn't understand that. And and really, even in our own society, uh, this is a rather new thing. It's called germ theory. It's still called germ theory uh, because uh, they're not exactly sure. But uh, we do know how that works. You know, if somebody's sick, if they're contagious and you're near them and so on. But they didn't understand that. But God knew that all along. And so that's why he said if they're sick, you need to separate from them. You need to isolate them. So, whether it's leprosy or discharges or contact with human bodies, whether it was, uh, or excuse me, dead bodies, whether they were human or otherwise, uh, separate yourself. You're still part of us, but we don't want to catch your stuff. So, uh, you need to be isolated. Now, the spiritual import of this idea is that disease and death is a direct result of sin. We know that. Uh, when Adam and Eve, before they sinned, there wasn't any uh, disease, there wasn't any death. Uh, but disease and death is a direct result of sin. I mean,. I wish there weren't children's hospitals, and when I say that, I mean I wish there were not a need for children's hospital. These kids, you know, and uh, we've, we spent a lot of time in children's hospital. We had a foster daughter that was uh, just, she was a, uh, had a liver transplant. Just We were all the time at Pittsburgh Children's Hospital, and she was, even though she was very sick, she was way better off than most of those kids that we would see in that place. And I just wish, wish that weren't the case. But it is. It's a direct result of sin. And, and then death, too. And we often ask, you know, why did so-and-so die? Why did they have to die? I don't understand. It all comes back to sin. Now, don't misunderstand. Not necessarily that that person did something wrong. They sinned, and so that's why they died. Or that person sinned, and that's why they're sick. But because there is sin in the world, that is why there is sickness, and that is why there's death. But God's people were to be holy. Again, tonight we're looking at rules for holiness. God's people were to be holy. And disease is a symbol of sin. Disease is a symbol of unholiness. God dwelt among his people. And God is holy. Look in verse 3. Both male and female shall you put out outside the camp. Shall you put them that they defile not their camps in the midst whereof I dwell. And so God is holy. And he said, I dwell in that camp. And... This sickness, this disease, this represents unholiness. They need to be separated. Now I want to show you something funny from Deuteronomy 23. And it's funny how different versions of the Bible try to cover up what this says. Uh, But it's this same idea of God living in the camp. I'll be reading from the King James, of course. You may have a different version that says it a little bit differently. Uh, But this is, and I'm getting off track just a little bit. But this is uh, having to do with going to the bathroom, number two in particular. Uh, But it's actually funny uh, when you understand what it's saying. So Deuteronomy 23, beginning in verse 12, it says, You shall have a place also outside the camp where you shall go forth abroad. Now that's how the King James talks about it. You go forth abroad. Okay. Like I said, if you're using something else, it probably says it differently. And you shall have a paddle upon your weapon. And it shall be when you ease yourself abroad, you shall dig therewith and shall turn back and cover that which comes from thee. And here's what makes it funny. Verse 14. For the Lord thy God walks in the midst of the camp. (laughs) So you better, when you do your business, you better cover it up. Because I walk through there. And I don't want to step in that. I mean, that's not me interpreting. That's what the Bible says. All right. The point is, you'll never forget that now, but the point is God was in the camp. God is holy, and so you need to keep the camp holy. So when we talk about sickness, I want to ask a favor of you. Stay home from church when you're ill. Stay home from church when you're ill. Because you don't want to spread it to others. You know, we understand. They may not have understood how contagion works and so on, but we do and, and, and so stay home. If you if you got something contagious, if you're running a fever, I'm not even talking about COVID. I'm just saying, if you're not feeling well, stay home. You don't want to spread it. And not only that, but suppose you got a really bad cough. Well, the manifestation of that sickness that's causing you to cough, that can be very disruptive. I mean, if you're sitting right next to somebody and you cough through the whole service, they probably are not able to get anything out of the service. So consider others. And especially nowadays, since we know, you know, we have, you can go online and you can listen to it later and all that kind of stuff and get it on your phone. It's really, if you're sick, please stay home and then, you know, catch it. And then and when you're better, you can come back. I have people sometimes that will call me and they'll say, hey, listen, uh, I'm not going to come to church tomorrow because I've got a fever. I'm not going to come to church tomorrow because... You know, I'm coughing, and I just can't seem to stop my cough. And I thank them. I really appreciate that Uh, because we don't want to be spreading whatever it is we got to other people. So we see isolation. But secondly, I want us to look at restitution. Now, these are all rules for holiness, restitution. Sin must be confessed and then repaid. Look in verse 7. Then shall they confess their sin, which they have done. And he shall recompense his trespass with the principle thereof, and add unto it the fifth part thereof, and give it unto him against whom he hath trespassed. And so sin must be confessed and then repaid. You've got to make things right. If that's what it talks about, the principle there. You've got to give them back the principle, whatever it is that, however they've been cheated or whatever. You give them back the principle, then you add 20%. That's one-fifth. You add 20% to it. There is a one-for-one one correspondence. If you're going to live a holy life, according to God here in Numbers chapter 5, when you've wronged somebody, you need to make it right plus 20%. There's not only a one-for-one one correspondence. You've got to restore the principle, but you need to add an additional fine for their trouble. You somehow troubled them. They get 20% more. In other words, don't just say you're sorry. Make it better than it was before. I remember when I I was saved when I was six, excuse me, seven years old. Is what I would say. But I didn't get serious until much later in my adult life. And once I got serious about my faith, um, I had a lot of restitution to take care of because I had stolen a lot of things. I stole a stopwatch from my high school physics class. Um, I stole road signs from the National Park Service because they look great in my college room. I was at Chuck E. Cheese and they had a sign on the salad bar that says one time to the salad bar only. I stole that. But let me tell you what. I was already saved, but when I got serious, I sent all that stuff back. I either delivered it myself or if it was too far away, I sent it back. I boxed it up and I wrote a letter and in that letter I said, you know, I've become serious about my faith in Jesus Christ. I stole this 10 years ago, whatever it was, and I just want to make it right. Now I didn't add 20% because I'm cheap, and this is Old Testament. But anyway, the point is, uh, try to make things right. Try to make things right, and that's something we need to do. And think about it in our own justice system in the United States, uh, victims' rights we talk about. In the United States, when you get busted for something, uh, you have to pay a fine, and you pay it to the government. You don't pay it to the victim. The victim doesn't get anything but satisfaction. Oh, good, he went to jail, or good, he had to pay a fine. The victim gets nothing, and our government somehow gets it. I don't understand that. In rules for holiness, God says, you wrong somebody, you make it right, plus 20%. Give it to them. Don't give it to some government agency. Restitution. You know, this will be our desire once we become right with God. Jesus taught we can't be right with him while being at odds with our brothers. He put it this way. He said, if you're on your way to leave uh, to, to make a sacrifice... He says, leave your gift at the altar. Go get things right with your brother. Then come back and make an offering to God. Now, there's nothing we can do to make things right with God. He does it all. All we can do is receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. Believe he died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again the third day. That's all we can do. He does everything else. The best we can do is to live a life of holiness and faithfulness. This is pleasing to him and this shows our appreciation to him. But here's the thing. Once we are right with God, it is our responsibility to be right with others. And so I want you to think about this tonight. With whom do you need to make things right? Now, I know I was talking about, you know, stealing a stopwatch and uh, Chuck E. Cheese and all that. Uh, But there might be a person with whom you need to make things right. Like you're coming to church and you're giving your offering and you're singing and you're doing all these things. But you know very well there's somebody in your life that you are on the outs with. You need to make that right. Here's another thing, though. Paul talks about in Romans 12. He says, "Inasmuch as lies in you, live at peace with all men. And the point he's making there is sometimes you can't make peace with others because they don't want it. And that may be the case with you. But make sure you're not the problem. If they're the problem, that's their problem. But make sure you are right with others in as much as lies within you. So we see isolation here, rules for holiness. We see restitution. Secondly, let's look at devotion. And this comes with a little bit of introduction. And then we get into something really, really weird. God's intention for marriage is one man and one woman. And no homosexuality. I don't care what the Supreme Court of the United States says. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're talking about. It is one man and one woman. There's no excuse for them to redefine marriage when God invented it. God's intention is not only one man and one woman, but God's intention is for that one man and one woman to remain faithful unto death. The vows that are made in the wedding ceremony are made not only to each other, but to God. And God fully intends the partners to keep those vows. And God's intention for marriage is to be a picture of God's faithful relationship to his people. Christ is the groom. The church is the bride. We are eternally secure in this marriage. Wonder rules for holiness We see in verse 14 that a husband may suspect his wife has been unfaithful. He may suspect his wife has been unfaithful. It's called here a spirit of jealousy. Let's read that, verse 14. And the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be defiled. Or if the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be not defiled. So anyway, he suspects, the husband suspects his wife has been unfaithful. The spirit of jealousy. Apparently, she has given him reason to suspect, but there are no witnesses, and she denies it. Look in verse 13. And a man lie with her carnally, and it be hid from the eyes of her husband, and be kept close, and she be defiled, and there be no witness against her, neither uh, she be taken with the manor. And so she denies it. There's no witnesses, but he's suspicious. Well, there'd be no way to prove medically what happened or what didn't happen, but God would know. And so here's what they were to do under rules for holiness. Verse 15, bring her to the priest. Bring her to the priest. It says there, then shall the man bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring her offering for her, the tenth part of an ephah, of barley meal. He shall pour no oil upon it, nor put frankincense therein, for it is an offering of jealousy, an offering of memorial, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And so bring her to the priest and bring an offering. The offering was intended to get God's attention it was also intended to keep frivolous accusations. So in other words, if every time you suspect your wife, you've got to bring an offering, you know, you, maybe you're going to do some research on your own first because this is starting to cost you and every week, you know, you're bringing your wife to the priest. So what does the priest do with this potentially unfaithful wife? Well, he sets her before the Lord. Look in verse 16. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And here's where it gets weird. He then mixes holy water with dirt from the tabernacle floor, verse 17. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel, and of the dust that is in the floor of the tabernacle, the priest shall take and put it in the water. By the way, this is the only use of the term holy water in all the Bible. Now, if you have any Catholic friends, they talk about holy water all the time. It is a biblical term, but here and only here in this one verse. And in fact, when you study it a little bit deeper, the water is not special. It's just water from the holy place, and that's why it's called holy water. And the dirt also is not special dirt. It's just dirt from the holy place. So anyway, what the priest is supposed to do, he takes some of that water, takes some of the dirt from there in the tabernacle, and he puts it together. He mixes it. He makes some dirty water. And then he pronounces the charge. If you're innocent, nothing will happen to you. Look in verse 19. And the priest shall charge her by an oath and say to the woman, If no man hath lain with thee, and if thou hast not gone aside to uncleanness with another instead of thy husband, be free from this bitter water that causes the curse. If you're innocent, nothing will happen to you. This is very important that innocence is mentioned first because he's are going to talk about guilt in the next verse. But innocent is mentioned first. Innocence is what is hoped for. Innocence is is what is assumed. Even in our own country, we say innocent until proven guilty, unless you're dealing with the IRS, and then they have their own rules. But what if you are guilty? He also announces that. Look in verse 20. But if you have gone aside to another instead of your husband, and if you be defiled, and some man have lain with thee beside thine husband, then the priest shall charge the woman with an oath of cursing, And the priest shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord causes your thigh to rot and your belly to swell. Told you it was going to get weird. If you're innocent, nothing's going to happen to you. If you're guilty, you will have gynecological disorders resulting in infertility. That's verse 21. And you will be a curse among the people. Look down to verse 27. And when he has made her to drink the water, it shall come to pass that if she be defiled and have done trespass against her husband, that the water that causes the curse shall enter into her and become bitter, and her belly shall swell, and her thigh shall rot, and the woman shall be a curse among her people. Why will she be a curse? Because she has broken her vows, and she lied about it. Also, the woman must agree to this. Look in verse 22. She has to agree to this whole thing. And this water that causes the curse shall go into your bowels to make your belly to swell and your thigh to rot. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Amen means I agree. Or so be it. And so she has to agree to it. And so the woman must drink this dirty water and wait for the results. Verse 24. Did I already read that? And he shall cause the woman to drink bitter water that causes the curse. And the water that causes the curse shall enter into her and become bitter. Now, there's nothing magical in the water. There's nothing magical in the dirt. But if holy meets unholy, trouble will ensue. That's the point. When holy, you got the holy water, you got the holy dirt. Again, the water from the holy place, the dirt from the holy place. You've got that mixed. She drinks it. If she's been holy, everything's fine. If she's been unholy, the holy and the unholy don't mix. God always knows what we do. God always knows what we've done. Remember that. Now this legislation was designed more to be a deterrent than to be a common practice. I'm not saying it never happened. But it was put in here to be a deterrent. Because remember, before you even reach this point, the husband's got to pay, essentially he's got to pay a fine. You know, he's got to bring that offer. He's got to pay a fine. And then he's got to put his wife through all this stuff, drinking dirty water. The legislation was designed to protect innocent women from death by the community because it puts the final determination of judgment on God. And so if she drinks this dirty concoction and nothing happens, then everything's fine. But God knows if she was unfaithful and when she drinks this dirty concoction, he will cause these things to happen that were listed there. Her thigh to rot. You can look that up if you want to know what that really means. But anyway, all that stuff, uh, that's what he will cause to happen. It's kind of, when you read it, it's sort of reminiscent of the witch trials in our own nation from the 1800s. Um there's it was a no-win situation for the accused now that's not the case here again if she drinks the dirty water nothing happens and everything's fine she drinks the dirty water and she is guilty well God's going to make sure that these things happen to her but anyway you know those witch trials of the 1800s uh, what they would do they would take a, a, an accused witch and they would burn them and they would say now if we burn them and they die they're innocent but if we burn them and they live they're guilty And they would do the same thing with drowning, right? They would throw them in the river with a weight on their foot, and they say, now, if they drown, they were innocent, but if they float, they're guilty. Well, there's no win situation. Here, the final determination is not the community who, if she were guilty, they could stone her to death. That was the law. The final determination was was with God. He decides what happens when she drinks the dirty water you might be thinking, because we're running out of verses now, you're like, well, what if the husband's unfaithful? Yeah, see, you were thinking that, weren't you? You're like, <laughs> what if the husband's, it seems all one-sided. Well, it is in this passage. But the law addresses the circumstance of an unfaithful husband elsewhere. And when you think about it, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus puts the pressure on the man, even his thoughts. He says, if a man just thinks about it, he's guilty. And so the Bible does not is not a one-sided thing only in this passage. And I'm only taking a chapter at a time, so you know we're not going to look somewhere else, but just if you're not already aware, be aware that the Bible addresses the husband's faithfulness as well, just not right here. So how do we apply this section? Because, you know, we're talking all about missions and evangelism and sharing our faith. Please, do not, when you're out talking to people about Jesus, don't start in Numbers chapter 5 and tell them about the dirty water. Okay? That's more, that's a mature audience. Okay? You're not somebody you're just trying to tell, introduce to Jesus Christ. How do we apply this passage? Number one, the physical relationship is reserved for marriage only. And while this is the specifics of this passage, any form of marital unfaithfulness would count. Whether it's pornography, whether it's inappropriate relationships, all these things are unfaithfulness. Second way to apply this section is the married need to remain faithful to their vows. And so if you're here tonight and you're married, you need to remain faithful to your vows. And thirdly, the unmarried, and I know we have some unmarried here with us tonight. If you are unmarried, begin honoring your marriage vows now. Begin honoring them now. You may not know who you will marry one day, but you definitely know who you're not married to. So you don't wait till you're married to start keeping your vows. You keep your vows even if you don't know who you're going to marry. You certainly want whoever you marry. You want your future spouse to have been faithful to you, right? You need to be faithful to them, even if you don't know who they are. And so the physical relationship is reserved for the married only. The married are remain faithful to our vows. And the unmarried, we need to begin honoring our marriage vows now. So uh, Numbers chapter 5, rules for holiness. Number 1, isolation. If you're sick, stay outside the camp. We still love you. Stay outside the camp. Here at church, you're sick. Stay home. We still love you. Come back when you're feeling better. Don't make us all sick. All right? Secondly, restitution. Make things right with others. Make things right. Uh, Again, if you want to add 20% to it, you can. But you're not under the law. You're not an Old Testament person. But Jesus teaches restitution, making things right with others in the New Testament. So we are certainly responsible for that. Thirdly, we looked at devotion. Uh, Married couples are to be faithful. To each other. And remember, ladies in particular, if your husband suspects that you have been unfaithful, he's going to bring you to me and I'm going to mix up some dirty water and we're going to see what happens. All right? And we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together to be in your house, to sing your praises, to share uh, with each other. We thank you for your word. And even though there's some stuff that I consider to be strange, Lord, there is certainly a purpose for it and an application for our lives. May we be faithful as spouses, but even more importantly, may we be faithful to you. And we thank you that you are always faithful. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.